Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. We continue our series through the epistle of 1 John, going to be focusing upon verses 5 through 7 this Lord's Day, and God willing, next week we will finish the chapter and and be... uh, In chapter 2, verse 2 as well next week. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, the Apostle Matthew recounts his own call to follow Christ. Matthew's response to the grace of God in his life was to introduce the unregenerate, Shady business associates, at least former associates of his, tax collectors, to introduce them to the Lord. Now, when the self-righteous Pharisees saw Christ eating with such abominable sinners, these Pharisees were outraged. And they asked the Lord... Actually, they asked the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees were absolutely right on this point. These people were indeed sinners. Make no, uh, uh, there be no misunderstanding about that. They were clearly sinners. But what they failed to see was that they too were sinners just like the tax collectors. They, like the tax collectors, needed to sit down right alongside of these tax collectors to fellowship, to hear the Lord speak the truth unto them. When the Lord heard this question that had been asked of the disciples by the Pharisees, the Lord said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, the Lord was not declaring the Pharisees to be righteous. That was not the point at all. He was not declaring them to be righteous and therefore not in need of a doctor for their souls, But rather, he was rebuking them for not seeing themselves as spiritually sick, just like the tax collectors. You see, dear ones, before you can enjoy fellowship and communion with God, you must realize there is something that prevents 
man from knowing and enjoying the eternal God. And it is the word sin. Sin keeps us from enjoying fellowship and communion with God. Sin must be confessed and repented of before one can enjoy God and his marvelous forgiveness. Earlier, Elder Domes read from Psalm 32 about the joy that comes to those who no longer are silent, who confess their sins unto the Lord. We see the the kind of conviction that was upon the life and the heart of David while he clung to his sins. But he says, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And so if I were to summarize the, the sermon today, it might be with these short, pithy little questions followed by the response. No walking in the light. No confession of sin. No repentance of sin. Then no fellowship with God. My very dearest and closest friend on this earth is my wife. And I would rather spend time with Lana than I would with any other creature upon this earth. I'd rather try to find an hour or so wherever I can find it just to get away to spend some time talking and fellowshipping with my dear wife. That to me is a blessed fellowship that God has graciously granted to me and I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy it. Yet in spite of what I have just described as a blessed fellowship, When I sin against my wife and do not immediately confess my sin and repent of it, I would rather be anywhere in the house, be in any other room than in her presence, enjoying that fellowship that I just described. What happened? What went wrong? Is there something wrong with the fellowship? No, there's nothing wrong with the fellowship. The fellowship and communion is sweet. The problem is sin. The problem is that I have erected a wall of sin and cut myself off from the one I love and enjoy. That's the problem. And until I sincerely confess my sin to my wife and humbly seek her forgiveness, I will not enjoy that precious fellowship. Cohabitation? Yes. But fellowship? No. Dear ones, if you would enjoy fellowship with your husband and wife, this is a little application on the side, you must as well, quickly and frequently, 
Make repair to your wife or to your husband to confess your sin, to repent of it, to seek their forgiveness. The problem with so many marriages is not so difficult to figure out. The problem is sin. It's pride that keeps men and women from confessing. I sinned against you. Please forgive me. You know, after enjoying the fellowship, after knowing that sweet communion with that loved one, why would we allow our pride to get into the way of enjoying that? See, that's the nature of sin. And it must be dealt with. We must face it. But it hinders our relationship even more importantly with our God. The Lord tells us how, through the Apostle Paul, how to keep a short account. Don't allow the sun to set upon your wrath or your anger. Before you go to bed... Wives, be reconciled with your husbands. Before you go to work, husbands, the next day, be reconciled with your wives. Live, dear ones, in that sweet fellowship and communion with one another. Now, the Gnostic false teachers against whom the Apostle John directed his letter taught that sin actually did not hinder their relationship with God. After all, these false teachers promoted, as we mentioned uh, two weeks ago, they promoted the error that that which is spirit is righteous and that which is material is evil. That was a primary tenet of what they believed. The spirit in man, they said, could not therefore be contaminated by what is done in the body. It doesn't make any difference what one does in the body. It cannot taint and and corrupt the soul, the spirit, because the soul and spirit is immaterial. The soul and the spirit has been illuminated by the special knowledge that comes from God through this mystical experience that they proclaim to have received. The special anointing. That was all that was important to them. But I would have you carefully note, dear ones, how important it is to affirm that what we believe is desperately important. What we believe about God, what we believe about sin, what we believe about man, what we believe about salvation and everything else will have an effect in our life and our experience. You cannot keep doctrine, teaching, conviction within your mind. It will be expressed through your life in one way or another. As a man thinks in his heart, Proverbs 23, 7 says, so is he. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
And so the practical outworking of this false teaching of the Gnostics is that it really doesn't matter what one does with his body. You can be righteous in spirit, they taught, even though you're not practicing righteousness in the body. Well, the Apostle John squarely condemns such a heresy. Not only in the text that I'm reading and preaching from today, but also later on in 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, he very clearly directs his attack against this false teaching. Verse 7. 3, 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. You see the implication there? Someone is trying to deceive you. Let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, speaking of God, just as he is righteous. He who practices righteousness. And so these Gnostics could say, fellowship with God does not ultimately depend upon what I do in the body. Now, there is a germ of truth here, and I would say a microscopic germ of truth, but there always is a germ of truth that seems to be in error. It's just enough sometimes to, to deceive and to catch some people. That germ of truth is this, that you are not, in fact, according to the Scripture. God says you are not declared righteous by God on the basis of the deeds that you do in the body. That is not the basis upon which God declares you righteous. You are declared righteous based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. But on the other hand, in order to enjoy, and this is where they were clearly wrong, in order to enjoy life and fellowship with God, you must walk in the light. You must. That's not an option. Sanctification in the Christian life is not a choice in a sense that it's an option or an alternative for a Christian. Just as essential as justification is to the life of a Christian, one cannot be a Christian without being justified. So one cannot be a Christian apart from being sanctified. One must grow. One must walk in the light. As we consider the Word of God in 1 John chapter 1, I'll be focusing my attention, as I mentioned at the outset, on verses 5 through 7. Let me just simply give you a little summary of where we're going this Lord's Day and next Lord's Day. <coughs> in these verses, you will note first that John gives a general principle in verse 5. That general principle is this, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. 
Secondly, John will apply this general principle concerning the nature of God to three very specific errors that were being propagated by these mystic, Gnostic, false teachers. These three errors are are stated in verse 6, 8, and 10. And there's a little phrase that precedes each of these errors. If we say, notice in verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Error number one. That error that says that sin does not break your fellowship with God. Error number two is in verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Error number two is that sin does not exist in the nature of man. Error number three is verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The third error is this. Sin does not exist in our conduct either. What all of these three errors do is to relieve responsibility on the part of man to walk in holiness before God. Dear ones, sin may not be a very popular topic about which to preach these days. I don't know that it was ever a popular topic about which to preach. The nature of man does not like to hear about his own sin, about his own rebellion. And yet, if we are to enjoy fellowship with God, we must address this particular subject. I stated earlier that one's view of sin will affect the way that he views everything. And I want to make just one very brief application just to show you how one's view of sin can affect this area, one area of life. Take the raising of our children. One's view of sin and how it affects the raising of our children You know, there are some people in the world today, (coughs) many in fact, who view children as basically not having any kind of a sinful nature. That they are born predisposed to good rather than predisposed to evil. The Christian understands, however, from God's word, that foolishness, not wisdom, foolishness, which is a sin, to be foolish. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. But the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Proverbs 22, 15. The Christian understands from God's word that the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born. 
not only go astray, but specifically the text says speaking lies. Psalm 58.3. Therefore, because the Christian parent loves the Lord and because he sincerely loves his child, he disciplines him promptly. Proverbs 13.24 says, he disciplines him promptly. In fact, God declares in that same passage in Proverbs 13.24 that the parent who just can't bear to spank that dear little child of his, when that child is disobedient, that that parent really doesn't love the child at all, but really hates him. He hates him because, in effect, in not disciplining him, because he knows foolishness is bound up in that child's heart, that child, if it's not corrected, is being led to destruction. You are leading your children to destruction, dear ones, if you do not discipline promptly because of the foolishness that's bound up in their hearts. Quite a responsibility. I certainly don't want to be responsible for leading my children to destruction. God help us to be faithful in that area. But you see how different an acknowledgement of sin makes in the way in which we discipline, the way we correct from the person who basically sees that all of these, the self-expression, in fact, parents many times who believe their children are inherently good, say it's good for a child to express themselves. They throw a temper tra- tantrum. They're simply expressing themselves. If they hit you, they're simply expressing themselves. If they slam the door or throw something against the wall, well, you have to allow a child to... You know, to show some emotion and express themselves. Or try and understand, now, why did that child throw that object at me? There must have been a good reason. See, we approach discipline totally different because we understand the the nature of man, because we understand sin for what it is. So this is a very serious matter. Well, let's consider first from our text the general principle that is stated in 1 John 1.5, namely that God is light. What John now declares to these believers, he states in the first part of verse 5, is not some idea that came to him through the special anointing of Gnostic experience. John speaks here with apostolic authority. He says, this is the message. So many today who claim to have prophetic gifts say, something to this effect. They believe that they uh, have the gift of prophecy and when they're prophesying over someone, they may say something like, Dear brother or sister, I feel God may be telling you to do this or to do that. 
Now, what kind of authority is that? I feel God may be telling, well, if he may be, well, he may not be, too. That leaves the, the matter up to me to decide. And yet, that is the way in which so many who claim to have prophetic gifts today are couching their prophecies. You see, John does not speak with that kind of simply uh, human authority. He speaks with apostolic authority. This is the message. Now, how can the apostle speak with such certainty? Because he says, this is the message which we, that we there again, as we mentioned last time, is the apostolic we, we the apostles, have heard from him and declare to you. We can speak with this authority because we are Christ's representatives. We are his apostles, his prophets. We are the mouthpiece of God. And all the human authors of Scripture were inspired prophets of God. They spoke and wrote as the very mouthpiece of God. In spite of the claims of these Gnostics who claim to have received special knowledge of God, John implies that they have not received any such knowledge of God, but the message that he declares, he declares as an apostle of Christ, and it is absolutely true. Two tests that I would just challenge you to give to any who claim to be modern day prophets. Two tests that I think are very, very important, that are biblical, that I think wipe out anyone who would claim to be a prophet today. The first test is that a true prophet of God was never wrong concerning anything that he prophesied in the name of God. He was never wrong about any detail of that prophecy. He spoke as the mouthpiece of God and everything he said came true. Even the so-called modern-day prophets do not want to stand against that test. I can understand why. But they ought to recognize in so doing that they either stop prophesying or saying that they are prophets of God or they call themselves what they are, which is false prophets. The second test is this, that a true prophet considers what he declares to be equivalent with Scripture. And again, so many of the so-called modern prophets today would say, we're not putting our prophecy on par with Scripture. God's Word holds preeminence in our lives. Well, I'll tell you what, dear ones, that the prophets of God, as they prophesied in the Old Testament and the New Testament, were willing to put their prophecies along and beside the Scripture and to consider it as authoritative and as inspired as the written Word of God. The Gnostic prophets, nor any other prophets of today, whether they be Mormon, Roman Catholic, or Charismatic, can meet these two tests of a true prophet. But John the Apostle of Jesus Christ did meet 
these two criteria. What he prophesied came true. He was the one who prophesied 22 chapters of prophecy, or book of Revelation. Those prophecies, for the most part, have already been fulfilled in that first century. They came true as he predicted. And he claimed apostolic authority and what he said was on par with the rest of Scripture. The message John proclaims, dear ones, here is from Christ. And this is the message. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Quite literally, God is light and in him is no darkness None, not any darkness, pure, unapproachable light. Now, here's an absolute statement by the Apostle John concerning the character and the nature of God himself. And again, I would simply submit to you the truth that your view of God If it is distorted, so will everything else be distorted. If you begin wrong, believing in things that are not true concerning God, it will certainly have its way of working into everything else that you believe. You cannot conform the God of the Bible according to your thoughts and ideas without forming a new God and even a false god. It is in essence idolatry. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, John says. That is, he is a holy and a just God, in whom no error or sin can dwell. He abominates sin and despises all wickedness and error, for he is essentially As to his nature, he is essentially truth, righteousness, and purity. The figurative language of light versus darkness is quite an interesting contrast in Scripture. And it's used many places in Scripture. And I believe it refers to two different kinds of contrasts. The, the contrast of light versus darkness refers to two different kinds of, of contrast. The first kind of contrast is the contrast of truth versus error. We find that, for example, illustrated for us in Psalm 43.3. Notice how the psalmist uses light in this context. Psalm 43.3. Where he cries out, Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Your light and your truth. The same thing in the New Testament. 2 Peter 1.19 We see again how light and darkness <laughs> refer to truth. Versus error. Second Peter one nineteen. <clears throat> we also have the prophetic word 
made more sure, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the light, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so we might, using that contrast, substitute and say this. God is truth, and in him is no error at all. But there's also another contrast that the scripture uses with regard to light and darkness. And that's the contrast of holiness versus wickedness. <clears throat> Turn with me to Isaiah 5.20. Isaiah 5.20 <clears throat> says this. The prophet speaking to, to God's people. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And along the same lines is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 11, where the former lifestyle and conduct of these believers in Ephesus is called darkness. But the new self that they are to put on, this new lifestyle and conduct is light, the way in which they are to live. And so if we were to substitute that particular concept into this contrast, we would find something like this. God is holy and in him is no evil at all. Well, these two meanings of light <clears throat> namely truth and holiness, are important to keep together. <clears throat> you cannot separate truth from holiness. How will one know how to be holy apart from knowing the truth? And so they must be connected at all times. You cannot tear them apart without flooding your soul and your whole world with darkness. Truth and holiness is the light that God has given to his people. In fact, the very purpose of light is both to make men see, to make men see the truth, but not to stop there. But also to enable them to walk. Light is for the purpose of helping to walk according to the truth. See, I don't simply need sight, light for my eyes, for the purpose of just being able to see. I need sight and I need light to be able to know how to walk. Lest I stumble, lest I fall along the way. And so to the degree that your mind is illuminated by truth, to that degree your life will be lived in holiness. Where it's truly illuminated by truth. And contrary to the degree that your thoughts of God are darkened by error, to that degree your life and experience as a Christian will be lived 
in a kind of darkness. And here's the foolishness of these Gnostics who had claimed to have fellowship with God and yet they claimed they could walk with one eye and one foot in darkness and one eye and one foot in the light. And it's no big deal. John says that's impossible for God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if you would have fellowship with a God of light, you must walk in the light as he himself is in the light. The second point that I would like to make, my final point, is this. It comes from verses 6 through 7. 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. And this essentially is that very first error that I alluded to earlier. This is one of those claims made by these false teachers which John now refutes. This is the claim in essence. Sin does not break your fellowship with God. Sin does not break your fellowship with God. John says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. <coughs> you see, dear ones, the error that is, that is claimed here, that is propounded by these Gnostics is the spirit of antinomianism or lawlessness. The Apostle John defines sin in 1 John 3, 4 as lawlessness. To live contrary to the law of God is to live in sin. Because sin, John says, is lawlessness. Thus, any message, dear ones, coming from a minister or a church that despises the law of God is itself lawless. There are ministers who have proclaimed a kind of liberty from God's law that is clearly unbiblical. Flying in the face of James 1.25, which describes the law of God as the perfect law of liberty. <clears throat> Citing passages like Romans 6.14, you are not under law, but under grace. Or passages like 2 Corinthians 3.6, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Many professing Christians, and I have to include myself in this camp at one time, and maybe you were there at one time as well. Praise be to God for having delivered us from this particular error. But many have been misled into believing that these passages, these short little phrases, themselves, teach that we are not love-bound nor duty-bound to obey God's commandments, but rather are bound to follow simply the leading of the Holy Spirit. 
distinction from God's law. Now, others have further refined this position somewhat by saying that they're not bound by the commandments of God in the Old Testament, but by the commandments of God in the New Testament. However, these positions, dear ones, lead a Christian into darkness, I'm convinced, rather than into light, for they disregard God's moral law, which is revealed in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. For you see, concerning his own law, even the Old Testament law, concerning his law, God declares in Proverbs 6.23, for the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light. There was no New Testament written. It was only the Old Testament. The law of God is a light. And that's what we're to walk in. We're to walk in God's truth so that we can know what God calls us to do and how to live according to His righteous commands. Psalm 19, the law is perfect. The law of God is perfect, converting the soul. You see, Paul is absolutely correct in these two passages, Romans 6.14 and 2 Corinthians 3.6. He's absolutely correct when he proclaims, sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? For you are not under law, but under grace. You see, Paul is not setting the Christian free from his duty to obey God's law. He is simply declaring that God's law, apart from God's grace, cannot deliver one from the dominion of sin. God's law is a perfect reflection of God's holy and righteous character. And it's a reflection of God's will for your life. But apart from the grace of God, apart from the work of Jesus Christ, apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the law of God as a perfect standard of righteousness can only condemn you. It can only judge you for your sin. And that's what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 3.6, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The law, apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, will destroy you. It judges you and sentences you to eternal condemnation. The heart and life of one who is truly walking in the life or in the light is actually expressed in the words of Psalm 1. Turn with me there. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. This is the way one who is walking in the light lives. He meditates upon the law of God day and night. Paul says in Romans 7.12, one chapter after he says, you're not under law but under grace, 
He says in Romans 7, 12, Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with me. The problem is with you. The problem is our sin and our rebellion. And we cannot keep it apart from the work of Christ in the ministry of the Spirit in our lives. Furthermore, I would simply add, did the Lord Jesus Christ walk in the light? Certainly every Christian would affirm, yes, Jesus Christ walked in the light. How did He do so? How did He walk in the light? By ignoring the law of God or by keeping every precept of God's law? Man shall not live by bread alone, Jesus said, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus didn't narrow it to the New Testament. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Walking in the light, dear ones, is not being led either by your feelings or by your impressions or by some mystical inner voice of the Spirit. Walking in the light is walking in dependence upon the Holy Spirit to illuminate your mind and your understanding and study the Word of God. As God gives you insight into how to apply the Scriptures to every area of life, that is walking in the light. There's so much confusion today as to what it means to be led by the Spirit, dear ones. Being led by the Spirit is being led to search the Scriptures, for the Scriptures were inspired by the Holy Spirit and applying by the Spirit God's Word to your life. It is obeying. Walking in the light is simply obeying the living God as He's revealed Himself in His Word. Psalm 36.9 says, In your light we see light. You want more light? You begin with light. And as you study the light, God gives you more light, more truth, more understanding. It becomes an adventure in your life. It doesn't become a dull, boring uh, experience to read God's Word. When you are going to fellowship with God, when God illuminates your mind and your understanding. And again, as I said I think a couple of weeks ago, that doesn't mean that we will necessarily have perfect understanding of everything that we find in the Scripture. Even the Apostle Peter said that there are certain things that are hard to understand that Paul has written. But we continue to grow. We continue to press forward. John makes it clear Dear ones, that anyone claiming to have fellowship with God and yet walking in total disregard of God's light and revelation is lying. He's lying and is not to be listened to. He's not to be followed because he's not putting into practice the truth. He's not walking the truth. Faith without works is dead faith. And I would simply say, dear ones, the way to win 
those family members, many times, they need to hear the truth, but the way to win them, more often than not, is simply, not simply giving to them the truth, but walking in the light. Letting them see through your life the way in which you conduct your family, the way that you love your husband, the way you love your wife and your children, the respect that your children have for elders, older people, for adults. Letting them see the effect of the gospel in your life, walking in the light, will sooner bring them to the truth than banging them over the head with the truth. John's positive affirmation about this first false claim is found in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light... We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. John says, he's already refuted the error in verse 6. Now, by way of positive affirmation about this first false claim, he says, if we, but if we walk in the light, that is in the truth, not simply professing the truth, but walk in the truth. Not only making a good confession of faith, but living that confession of faith in our lives. We walk in that light as God is in the light. In other words, we're not walking in in a light that we've created. We're walking in God's light. Where does God's light come from again? From His Word. We not only have fellowship with God, but this passage says we have fellowship with one another. You see, if you have fellowship with God, you have fellowship with all of those who have fellowship with God. If you're in union with Jesus Christ, you're in union with all of those who are in union with Jesus Christ. But I'd have you notice here, dear ones, what is the basis for fellowship with one another. What does the text say? Is the basis for fellowship with one another. Is fellowship based upon one's mere profession to be a Christian? <clears throat> These false teachers no doubt profess to be followers of Christ, as did the false teachers in Paul's letter to the Galatians. As do many cults today profess to be followers of Christ. It is not merely a profession to be a follower of Christ upon which our, our uh, fellowship is based. Nor is it simply upon some common experience that we share with someone who pro- professes to be a Christian. Someone says that I have faith in Christ. Or someone says I've been baptized in water. Or someone says, I study the Bible. Those in and of themselves are not necessarily, though they may be common experiences for all Christians, they in and of themselves do not form in and of themselves the basis 
for fellowship with others. Rather, true fellowship, hear me carefully now, true fellowship within the church of Jesus Christ is based upon walking in the light as God is in the light. Walking in the light and the truth of God's Word. I think this has much to say concerning the whole trend to push for institutional union between churches, even at the expense or neglect of the truth. Dear ones, there can be no true fellowship if there is significant differences regarding the truth. You cannot have true fellowship with those with whom and between whom there are significant differences pertaining to the truth. 2 Corinthians 6.14 makes it very clear. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. But notice here, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? Now, though we may not declare or believe that certain churches were not united with now, we would not declare them to be false churches. Nevertheless, I would maintain we must be careful to not compromise the truth for the sake of union, institutional union together. I would make the application to you who are parents, as you look at at your children, as you plan for their future, as you talk to them about courtship and engagement and marriage, it's very, very important that you explain to them the, the importance of, of union together with one who shares the same convictions. I have seen marriages that I have worked desperately to try to reconcile, but because there were foundational differences as to convictions about the truth, and no one was going to budge, there was, there was a constant hostility. The husband not able to lead in family worship. The wife not respecting the things that the husband says because of the differences. Imagine the difference that would occur if, the, if a wife and a husband disagreed over over the baptism of infants. Imagine when it, they, it came time and they, they had their first child. What is to be done with this child? Is this child to be baptized or not? And you can multiply the differences that can occur theologically. But it's very, very important we see that true, lasting fellowship is founded upon the truth. Upon the truth. Finally, the, the benefit, not only <clears throat> is there fellowship with one another, but, but from walking in the truth, <laughs> there is also this benefit that flows from walking in the light, and that is the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Now, John implies here, I believe, that walking in the light does not mean sinless perfection. Otherwise, why would you need the blood of Christ to cleanse you from all sin? Why would you need the continual, because it's in the present tense, 
The blood of Christ continues to cleanse us from all sin. Why would you need the continual cleansing of your sins if walking in the light means sinless perfection? It does not mean that at all. Walking in the light is a process. Just as walking is a process, it's moving in the realm of light and walking toward ever greater light and understanding of God's truth and application of God's truth to your life. But as you do so, there's a strange thing that occurs. As you walk in the light, there's something very strange that seems to happen that perhaps at first you're not aware of. You become actually, as you walk in the light, more aware of your sin. You become more aware of how far you fall short of the glory of God. You become more aware of how often you're confronted with temptation in your life. And sometimes it can be quite overwhelming because you become so aware of these things going on. What's the explanation for this phenomenon? I think it's very biblical. Because the closer you you come to light, in even a natural way, the closer, if I'm in a dark room, and there's a, there's a lamp over on the other side of the room. <clears throat> so the room's not totally dark, but there's, there's a, a light over on the other side of the room. The closer I get to that light, the more I can see about myself. The more I can see my blemishes, or my dirty face, my dirty eyes, or my dirty mouth, or my dirty ears, or my dirty hands. And so it is in our spiritual walk. The closer we come to the light, the more we become aware of how filthy we are and how much we need the Lord Jesus Christ and His cleansing blood to purify and to cleanse us from all sin. Dear ones, the introspection that can occur in the life of a Christian can almost destroy you apart from the fact that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. You throw yourself into a sea of introspection apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. And you're dead in water. A person can only survive that kind of spirit introspection, looking at themselves, shining the light, and to their souls, knowing that Jesus, the blood of Jesus Christ, cleanses them from all sin. And I would simply say in conclusion, dear ones, that for which you should be striving in your Christian life is not simply to enjoy the gifts and the blessings of God, but as I said earlier, you should be striving to enjoy God Himself, to desire and yearn for fellowship with Him who is your life. Oftentimes, I listen closely to people as they describe what they 
look forward to concerning heaven. And very often, and these are all good things to look forward to. I'm not in any way putting them down, but I also look for something else in their, in their, in their response, in their answer. But you hear very often, I'm looking forward to seeing my loved ones who have gone on before me. I'm looking forward and anticipating the fact that I will be set free from pain, from a curse, from death, from temptation, from sin, from hell. But I wait. Do they know what makes heaven heaven? It's God. It's fellowship. It's enjoying the eternal God, the living God. That's what makes heaven, heaven. You see, that's the essence of your salvation. Not all the things that you've been delivered from, those are important things that must be done in order for you to enjoy God. But the essence of your salvation is fellowship with God. And the Gnostics here claim that they could have that fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness. It's a lie and don't you believe it. Well, it's not too late to begin walking in the light, dear ones, if you haven't been, as you should. It's not too late to begin now to commit your life, to renew your vows before God. For the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Children, you're not too young to walk in the light as God is in the light. You're not too young to walk in the light. Why? Because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin as well. And parents, listen to John's greatest joy as he expresses it in 3 John, verse 4. What is John's great joy? I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Is that your greatest joy as a parent? To know that your children are walking in the light. Walking in truth. Not simply believing the truth. Not simply professing the truth but walking and practicing the truth. You are the greatest means, parents, by which your children will learn how to walk in the light and in the truth. As they observe you, as you train and teach them, it's very easy to walk in the light when you come together with God's people on the Lord's Day. But are you walking in the light before your family? at home daily. Those who know you best, are you walking in the light before them? Dear ones, it's not too late to begin. For the blood of Jesus Christ, that all-powerful blood of Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all sin. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the Word of life. We thank You for the truth, for the light that You have shed upon us. Lord God, we would simply pray that You would help us by Your grace 
to walk in the light, that we would desire and yearn to walk in the light so that we might enjoy that sweet fellowship with you and with your Son and with your Spirit. Oh, Father, if there are any here who who are complacent and yet remain complacent about this most important truth in the life of a Christian, we pray that you would stir their hearts, that you would cause them to to hunger and thirst for righteousness and for the living God. Lord God, we pray that, that as parents, you would give to us the grace that we would have no greater joy than to know that our children walk in the light and that you, God, have used us. Imperfect as we are, you have used us to lead them in the path of life and not in the path that leads to destruction. In Jesus' name, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing 
and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.